Well, hey, Hope City, it's good to be with you today. And fun fact about Sean, I love television. Like many people, I grew up on television. Uh, I was a teenager who loved television. Now I'm an adult and parent who loves television. Television is, is entertaining, but also mirrors real life. And so there's an element of it that drags us and pulls us and entices us in there. And watching shows as a kid like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or uh, Family Matters, Full House, Home Improvement, you'd see these family dynamics and there would be conflict in those families, but they always managed to solve the problem in under 20 minutes. You ever notice that? No matter how big the problem was, in 20 minutes, we got a bow on that thing and we're moving on to the next week. And, and so there was always this, yeah, it's dealing with a real life conflict and I see some of that in my own life, but it never resolves in that same amount of time. And that's the difference between real life and TV life. And as I've grown older, I've begun to see that there is a difference between real life and TV life. And sometimes when we read our Bibles, we almost do the same thing. We have Bible life and real life. And we read characters and people like David, and we see him slaying giants and have a heart that beats to the rhythm of God. And we see him have a friendship with Jonathan that is inspirational and a model of healthy friendship. And we think, man, that's Bible life. And we forget he also had real life. He had gritty life. He had dysfunctional life, complicated life, messy life. David was not perfect. And so he had triumphs and he had trials. And one of the trials we're going to look at today is this dysfunctional family. David had multiple kids from multiple different people. Uh, I don't recommend that for a nice blueprint for a healthy family life. And, and David engages in this kind of creating a family in the way that he did, and it leads to a lot of dysfunction. And specifically, we're going to focus on the relationship between him and his son, Absalom. Absalom is this young, charismatic, well-spoken, handsome, power-hungry son of David's. And as you watch their dynamic and watch their story, you see it go from bad to worse to full-on soap opera. And it gets pretty bad. I mean, their story involves incest and rape and murder and rebellion and betrayal and excommunicating and abandonment and all of these different things. And, and all of this is tied into David's dysfunctional family. And I think what it reminds us is you've got a messy family. I've got a messy family. Nobody's got the perfect family. And David, the superhero of the Bible, didn't have the perfect family. In 2 Samuel 13, you read his story with his kids starts and, and one of his daughters, Tamar, becomes the object of affection for one of his other sons. They're half-siblings, his son Amnon, another kid. And then you have Absalom that's watching all of this transpire at a distance. And, and Amnon becomes infatuated with his sister Tamar to the point where it leads to him raping his sister. Just this heinous, egregious act and uh, just disgracing her as a person, treating her like an object. It's terrible, horrible moment in this and Absalom hears about how his sister has been betrayed and, and treated, and he is just infuriated. And then you have David. He's the father of all these kids. And what is he going to do? And we see in verse 21 of chapter 13, it says, David heard all this, and he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister. You begin to see this emotion brewing. David is angry at this act, but what you won't see is any kind of involvement, any kind of engagement. David is watching. He's listening. He doesn't correct his son Amnon. He doesn't deal with it. He doesn't console his daughter Tamar. 
Nothing happens. And so all it does is continue to enrage Absalom. And for two years, he plots his, his revenge. And he finally gets away with it. Two years later, he kills Amnon and flees. And he runs out of town. And we see in verse 36, it says, The king too and all of his servants wept bitterly. Absalom fled, but King David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. So Absalom kills his half-brother, runs off for three years. Now we're five years into this whole ordeal. And David, what has he done to step in? Nothing. He's neglected his fatherly duties. He's angry. He's weeping. So he's sad. He's in mourning. He's experiencing all of this emotion. But as a father, what has he done to intervene? Nothing. He's neglected his fatherly duties. Now, some scholars say that the reason is, is when he's watching all of this transpire, he's overwhelmed with his own shame and guilt of his own sin. His sin with Bathsheba and killing her husband that you read about in chapters prior. We're going to talk about that next week in hindsight. We're going to look back at that moment in his life. And so scholars say that the reason he doesn't intervene is he's dealing with his own stuff. And he doesn't know how to correct his kids. He doesn't know how to step in in this moment. And so it's a couple years later, David is convinced. Yes, bring your son back. Three years, right, has transpired. And, and Absalom moves back into Jerusalem. And then he's living in town for two more years. Seven years after all of it started. He finally is face to face with his dad. And this is what happens. It says in chapter 14, verse 33, the king summoned Absalom and he came in and he bowed down his face with his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. Now we read this and we say, hey, this is reconciliation. This is his fatherly embrace. It's a sign of intimacy. Scholars will look at this moment though and they'll say, it's really quite cold. What you don't see is the warmth. This is more of a liturgical checking of the boxes. This is the proper thing that they're supposed to do. And, and so really he's just going through the motions with his son. He's not reconciling. He's not fighting for his son. And you see that continue to perpetuate the problem. Absalom now seven years after his sister has been disgraced. And his father never listened to him. He just needed his dad. He needed his dad to be there, and he never was. And so Absalom, while he's in Jerusalem, stirs a rebellion. He wants the throne. I told you he's charismatic, so he used his words, he used his charm, a little wink to his smile, and he wooed the crowds. It says in, in chapter 15 that he stole the hearts of men of Jerusalem, meaning that he's tickling their ears so that they will revolt against David and turn against him. And this starts to freak David and his advisors out. And so David flees town. He takes his wives and gets out of Dodge. And meanwhile, he leaves the concubines in the palace. And, and, and here you have Absalom still in Jerusalem. And to just drive that wedge in between him and his father even further, he listens to his advisors and he has relations with his dad's concubines there in the palace. And you know what I mean by relations. Wink, wink, there it is. Right? but continues to just bring dysfunctionality within this family. And the dynamics here at play are continuing to divide them. And it's a total control play. It's a power play. David is trying to, to, to fight for his family, fight for his throne, and, and Absalom's doing the same thing. He's fighting for the throne too. He eventually leads his armies into battle against David, and they go out to fight. And in the midst of all of this battle that transpires, Absalom is killed. 
And David finds out. And in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, it says the king was shaken. He went up to the room on the, over the gateway and he wept. As he went and he said, oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's not until Absalom's death that all of this emotion just gets uncorked. And you wonder if David's crying and all of this and wondering what if. He's, he's dealing with regret. What if I had stepped in? What if I had done something? What if I had listened? What if I had intervened? And, and as you look at David and Absalom's story, it is not one that we want to posterize and make into this Kodak moment. This is not a special moment in that way. But when you look at David and Absalom, what you see is what happens when we fight against family. And we get engaged in these conflicts with our family and we find ourselves fighting against our family. And there's some character traits or characteristics of the dynamics at play in their relationship that, that I want to illustrate or expand on here. One is that they fixate. We focus on what they did, the problems, the issues, how they hurt us, how they did us wrong. We fixate on that. Absalom fixates on the, uh, on the, on the act that Amnon commits. He fixates on his father and what he does and doesn't do. He's locked in on that wrongdoing. Secondly, we ignore problems. We fight against our family by actually ignoring the problem, turning a blind eye, sweeping it under the rug. Maybe if I just don't engage, all of it will get dealt with and I don't have to intervene or be a part of this. I won't get my hands dirty in this. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. So I ignore it. And that's exactly what David does. He ignores the problems. He disengages from the problems and becomes disconnected. The next thing that we see is they give up. They give up on each other. There is no hope for each other. They, they have severed relationship. They've excommunicated. They, they've cut off. And we do that. We give up on any hope that something is good. Something good could happen between us. And so we give up when we're fighting against our family. And then there's hate. There's disdain and there's gossip and there's mockery and there's slander and all of these different things. But really at the core of it, Absalom has a hatred, a hatred towards his sibling, a hatred towards his father, and that drives him. When we fight against our family, there is a disdain, there is a mockery, there is a gossip, there is a hatred that is at work in our hearts. And lastly, uh, when we fight against our family, we take what we want. We take control, we take power, we take money, we take resource, we take influence. We become takers. It's what I get out of this. And I will fight against you so I get what I want. Clearly in this story, you see Absalom wants the throne. And so he will stop at nothing to take the throne from his father. And it is this tug-of-war match that goes back and forth. And so you begin to see all these different characteristics of how we fight against our family. We fixate on the problems. We ignore the problems. We give up on them. We hate them. We take from them what we want. As parents, we do this to our kids. This is how we fight against our kids. As kids, this is how we fight against our parents. And this plays out in all kinds of family relationships with siblings, with uh, a husband and a wife with uh, 
extended family members, in-laws, whatever it would be, but also you see that even within the church, within the church family, the body of Christ that's been knit together. And we end up fighting against each other because we're fixating and ignoring and giving up and we're hating and we're taking. There's a theologian and a, and a priest named Henry Nguyen, and he says it's, it seems easier to control people than to love people. I think that that's our propensity in this, especially with family. It seems easier to control people than to love people. And we turn the very people that God intended to be allies, teammates, they're on your side, your family, and we turn them into enemies because we try to control them, because we are fighting against them a tug-of-war match for power and control and struggles and, and, and self-focused nature of this, and we end up fighting against our family. But what if we stopped fighting against our family and started fighting for our family? I'll say that again. What if we stopped fighting against our family and started fighting for our family? You compare David and Absalom's story to that of the parable of the, the, the prodigal son. And Jesus tells this story in Luke 15 about this father who's confronted by his son. His son wants to pick a fight. He wants to fight against him. And he tells him in no uncertain terms, he says, Dad, give me my inheritance. Which culturally speaking, what is he saying? Dad, drop dead. It would be better if you died right now because then I would get what I want. I would be able to take from you. I, I don't like you. I don't want to be around you anymore. Just give me what's mine and I'm out. And so this transpires. He takes and he goes off and he lives life to the max and Hits rock bottom and that's it, right? He's eating with the pigs. And so then this guy, finally all embarrassed, all full of shame, goes back to his dad. And this is the response of the father. And the father shows for us what fighting for our family can look like. He says in chapter 15, verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. You see, this parable shows us what fighting for our family can look like, that we are contending for our family, that we are fighting for their benefit. And, and what are we fighting? What does that look like? Well, how is that characterized? Well, it's the opposite of what we talked about, right? So instead of fixating on problems, we forgive. We show them grace and we show them mercy when they don't deserve it. A quote I came across, I don't know who said it, but it says, forgiveness is wonderful when we're wrong, but never more powerful than when we are right. And I think the parable lives this story or lives that quote out. That forgiveness is great when we're wrong, but never more powerful than when we are right. The father's in the right, and he shows forgiveness to his son. Pastor Randy Remington, who is also our newly appointed Foursquare denomination president, said, you can't be close to people you won't forgive. We want relationship with friends and family and our kids and our parents and our spouse, and we want closeness. But he says, you won't be close to people you won't forgive. 
That forgiveness is a huge step in us fighting for our family. The next is that we are involved, that we get invested, that we don't turn our eyes away, but we actually listen. We pay attention. We show empathy. We engage with what's going on. The father sees the young man coming at a distance, and he runs to him. He doesn't send his servants. He runs to him, wraps his arms around him. He gets involved in the situation. He cares about it. And parents, we need to care about what's going on in our kids' lives. As kids, we need to care and engage with what's going on in our parents' lives. We need to be involved with each other. You can't be close if you're at an arm's length. We're fighting for our family. Next is that we give another chance. We don't quit on people. The father doesn't quit on the son, and the son doesn't quit on the father. Even at rock bottom, he knows he can count on his father. Like, that's the realization he comes to as he's laying in the mud eating pig food. He realizes, I can go back to my dad. And he gives his dad a second chance. This guy that he wanted nothing to do with and just wanted to take from him. He gives his dad a second chance. And the dad gives him a second chance. And we need to give other people another chance and another chance. Fighting for our family also means that we honor them. Instead of allowing hate to divide us, we honor them, we lift them up, we elevate them, we speak well of them. The son honors the father in this story. You see that as he takes this low position, but you see the father honor the son as he picks him up out of the dirt, dusts him off. That's what honoring people does. It says, I'm picking you up out of the dirt. I'm not going to belittle you. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to push you down. I'm not going to step on you or over you, even though I could. I'm not going to. I'm going to lift you up. That we honor our family. And in doing so, we are fighting for our family. Lastly, that we take responsibility. That we own our problems. We own our fault. We own our part in, in this. The son takes responsibility. You don't see him blame the dad when he comes back. He takes responsibility for his choices and we need to take responsibility for our role in conflict or difficulty with people and stop pointing fingers and remembering that we play a part in every conflict. And the father is willing to pay the price. He's willing to take ownership and responsibility of what that's going to be. He's going to carry the cost of reconciliation in that moment. And as you look at this parable, you see that it's the complete opposite of David and Absalom, right? And you just wonder, what if they had done a few of these things? Maybe one of these things. What if they had forgiven or been involved or given another chance or they had honored or taken responsibility? If they had done one of those things, let alone all of those things, how different their story would be. But the purpose of fighting for our family is not to get what we want. It's not to control them. It's not to feel warm and fuzzy. The purpose is to reconcile because we worship a God of reconciliation. We worship a God that in this parable embodies this idea of reconciling with his child. That what we see in the story of David and Absalom, it is a story where, man, oh man, at the heart of it, there's a desire and a longing for reconciliation. They don't do it but you're watching it and reading it for chapters and thinking, at some point, you guys should click. You should get this thing figured out. In fact, partway through in chapter 14, David is visited by this messenger. She's confronting him, and she drops this nugget of truth. She says, God devises ways so that the banished person may not remain estranged from him. I'll say that again. God devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. She's telling him, 
The God you worship is about reconciliation. You need to reconcile with your son. The prodigal son parable that Jesus drops generations later says the same thing that woman said to David, that God is not about banishing people, but reconciling and welcoming that welcoming them back in. And we need to be reminded of that today, that we worship a God that wants to reconcile with us, that he wants to fight for us, not against us. He could fight against us. There's a lot of reasons he could fight against you and fight against me and fixate on our problems and ignore our prayers. And he could, you know, give up on us and he could hate us and he could take from us, but he doesn't. He fights for us. He's in our corner. He is contending for his children and the parable so clearly shows us that. That's your heavenly father. He wants to be with his kids. He wants to be reconciled with his kids and he does that by sending his son Jesus. By putting Jesus on the cross, he's contending, he's fighting for you. And that idea reconciles us with God. It makes us compatible with God. The idea of reconciliation is taking two things that are incompatible and making them compatible. They go together, right? And and like peas and carrots. One way you could illustrate it is a lock and a key. Initially, you take a key, it doesn't work with a lock. You have to shape the key and configure the lock. And then those two things go together nicely and they function. They've been reconciled. Well, The idea that God reconciles with us means you and I are incompatible with God. He is perfect and flawless and just and loving, and we are none of those things. And yet because of Jesus on the cross, we are made compatible in that relationship with him. That's the difference. That's the reconciliation we experience from the Father through the Son. And we are made right with him and in relationship with him. And then it's out of that reconciliation with the Father that we can then reconcile with other people. Second Corinthians talks about a ministry of reconciliation. And that we live that out because God wants us to be an extension of reconciliation to the people in our world. Because we fight for our family because he first fought for us. We honor our family because He first honored us. We forgive our family because he first forgave us. We reconcile with our family because he first reconciled with us. This week I was processing with a family in our church. I got a devastating call, tragic call. We lost a member of our church unexpectedly and it it caused me to reflect on just the, the fragility of life and the unexpected nature of life. how quickly it can be done. And we praise the Lord for hope and knowing that, that this man is with Jesus now. Um, but in the times of conversation and reflection and prayer and then being home and seeing my own family, it caused me to reflect and, and it just stirred me in this way of, Sean, stop wasting your time fighting against your family. We spend so many times fighting against the people that God intended to be on our side. And for whatever reason, too much time has passed. I don't know what to say. I don't know how I'm going to fix it. I don't know where to start. We've got all these reasons not to reconcile with people, the people that are closest to us. And this week, when confronted with the fragility of life, I'm reminded, why would you wait? Why would you waste any more time Let's fight for the people that God has put in our lives. Let's fight for our family, 
Fight for your spouse. Fight for your kids. Fight for your parents. Fight for your siblings and extended family. Fight for your in-laws. Fight for your church family. Because you're fighting for them. And it may not be like in the TV world where we're able to put a bow on it in 20 minutes. But you're giving your life, living out that ministry of reconciliation and being a conduit of reconciliation and living that out and fighting for the people that God has put in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray right now we pray for those that just feel that desire and that, that, uh, that ache to be reconciled to you. That as they're listening right now, they, they just feel disconnected from you. They feel incompatible. They feel like the key doesn't fit the lock. And God, you look at them and, and you're contending for them. You're loving them. You want, as that father in the story, to wrap your arms around them. And we pray in this moment, God, that, that we would just commit our lives to you. I pray for those right now that just need to make that commitment to you and say, Jesus, be the king of my life. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of running my own race and running my own detours. And, and God, I just pray right now that you would be the, the center point. You would be the king. You would be our father. You would be our savior. And reconcile with your people. And I pray also for reconciliation to transpire within our, our earthly relationships. God, in, in, in those watching where they are, are experiencing friction and tension and conflict, God, if we, we are a David in a moment of conflict with our family, I, we are disconnected and apathetic and not knowing where to start, and we should be involved, but we're not, God, I pray right now that you begin to break our hearts to get involved, to step forward, to engage. If we are Absaloms in, the, in our conflict and we are stirring up conflict and rebellion and taking and fixating on problems and wrongdoings and fighting for what we think is our justice, God, I pray that you would break our hearts. Whether we're David or Absalom or both, God, I pray that you would restore and reconnect and reconcile these relationships, bring life and wholeness. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. For more information, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.